this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Rebecca Reitig, partner at Fisher Broyles. This is the first time I've had someone on the show to talk about more of the legal aspects, regulatory aspects of digital assets. And so this is a great conversation. Rebecca has been someone that I've leaned on for many years. Uh, She has spoken at my conferences, FO256, twice, and she really is an expert in this space. So we talked a lot about some of the things that are happening here. We talked about the legislative landscape and the legal landscape um, as it relates to digital assets. There are a few things that are currently ongoing right now. There's a case uh, against Ripple. There's a case against Kick and Telegram and uh, Rebecca opines and tells us what's happening with that. Uh, again, remember, nothing here is legal advice, uh, but you know she has a lot of great insight into what's happening there in real-time basis. We talked about the current Wilshire rejection of the ETF from the SEC and why that happened. And you know if there is going to be this ETF that we actually get to see within digital assets and how that could happen possibly. We also talked about the Tether issues. IFNX is Tether, stablecoin firm, and its Bifinex subsidiary are charged with manipulating the Bitcoin market in 2017. So we talked a lot about that and how that relates. So this is a great conversation. It really helps for family offices and institutional investors who are trying to understand where we are in terms of regulatory and legal clarity and how the the justices and the bodies that be are actually reviewing digital assets and giving us a pathway and some sort of guidance, if you will. I, I equated it to you know, kind of in the medical field. If you are presented with a case, a patient, and you have a body of work that gives you indications, okay, this is either a cold or a flu, or this is something with your stomach, et cetera, et cetera. They usually can look at a body of history to kind of come up with an evaluation of that. And that's where we're getting to with digital assets. We're getting to a body of work that helps us evaluate where things are going. And so we can properly diagnose where things need to go. So this is a great conversation. Remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. And in this particular case, nothing here is also legal advice. So please do your own research and speak to counsel. And remember, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and listening to the show. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Rebecca Reidig, partner at Fisher Broyles. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I am so happy I have a friend, Rebecca Reitig from Fisher Broyles. She is a partner there. This is the first. I believe the first episode on Base Layer, where we're going to be talking about the legal aspect of digital assets, of blockchains. And I can't think of a better person that I know than Rebecca. She has spoken at FO256 twice. And every time I learn more and people learn more about what's happening out there, she has a tremendous amount of experience in the space and someone I definitely think you all will learn a lot back from. So Rebecca, thank you for joining us on Baselayer. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be the first lawyer slash regulatory person on your podcast. I don't know why I've avoided it, <laughs> but I think it's, it, I think it's time and I think we'll have a good call here. So, um, 
before we get too deep into it, as everyone knows who listens to the show, I like to get a little bit of a background on my guest uh, before we get too deep into the weeds on the matters at hand. So if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, as you're not building a company or a project or an investor, but you are obviously focused on this space in a very unique way. Tell us a little bit about that journey. How did you actually start getting involved and how did you start to find your way into digital assets? So I started my career at a large New York law firm called Crevasswain and Moore, and I was a litigator there. And they introduced you to litigation by being a generalist. So you handle any case that comes into the firm. You don't specialize. And I started early in my career handling some of the tech cases, and I worked on the LimeWire matter, which really went into issues of copyright, but also about how new technologies uh, interact with the law. And so that was one of the cases that I liked the best early on in my career. And then uh, the same partner that I had worked with on the LimeWire case became a judge in the Southern District of New York, and I went to work for her. Um, and we worked on a lot of tech cases together. And one of them happened to be the Silk Road Ross Albert criminal prosecution. I had coincidentally just started reading about Bitcoin and Mt. Gox around the same time, uh, just for fun. Um, some, I think I had read something in the Wall Street Journal, and so like was a little bit bitten by the bug. Um, and so those two things really led me to believe that there was going to be uh, a big part for the law and for the development of the law around Bitcoin and other crypto assets. Um, I went back to Cravath and continued on doing litigation, but also risk management, advising boards, things like that. Um, and in 2017, uh, I left the large law firm life and went to actually start doing some of the very early um, litigation between exchanges and traders in the crypto asset space. Um, and some of the new types of claims that the changes in the traders were making against each other based on some of the novel types of trading and uh, algo slash electronic trading that was going on. And that, I, I haven't turned back from there. Um, mm -hmm. I love the intersection of law and technology. Um, I love watching the law develop around this space and trying to be both creative and thoughtful while helping um, uh, different projects in the space make sure they're compliant because I. I'm a true believer that um, I think we'll get to talk about this a little bit more when we get into your questions, but obviously uh, true market adoption is going to come with a developed market or a sort of a grown-up market where there's compliance that also allows the projects to flourish. That's right. And that leads into the question. So discuss, if you could, the legal landscape in digital assets over the last few years. I think a lot of people have decried that we have had a lack of clarity. You know, what is a security? What is not a security? You know, we had the ICO issues in 2017. We've had people trying to create ETFs. We're going to talk all about this, but tell us a little bit about your journey in terms of the observations of the legal landscape. And I think you're correct. A lot of institutional investors are very curious about this. They don't know what you know, those that are in charge of drafting law, those that are obviously adjudicating things, they don't really understand the, the where the thoughts are. And so if you could give us a little bit of a kind of a precursor, a little bit of a journey of the last few years, how it's transformed in terms of the legal landscape. So I think it's fair to say that very early on in 2017, there was a lack of clarity. What is a security? 
Um, how can custodians comply with securities laws? Um, you know, all the different market actors uh, didn't necessarily have, who has jurisdiction over what, whether it's the CFTC or the SEC, how does FinCEN play into this? How can a decentralized platform comply with OFAC regulations, things like that? I think very early in 2017, there wasn't a lot of clarity. Um, I think people are still sort of clinging to that, but I, I wouldn't agree that there's not clarity anymore. Um, you don't have, uh, let's say, a robust body of well-developed case law from the federal courts um, about digital assets. Um, that's certainly a truism right now. But you have, I mean, two and a half years worth of enforcement actions from the SEC that cover all the different market participants. So I think the SEC at this point has made their position very clear um, as far as where they stand today. And while there are novel tokens that are different than what we think of as ICO tokens, um, I think it's without question the first project, uh, the first project every project has to take on is if you're issuing token, whether that token is going to be considered a security, whether you're engaged in an ICO or not, um, or you're engaged in some fundraising with your tokens or not. Um, and the other thing that's pretty interesting, and I know we'll talk about this at some point too, is you're really having large cases start making their way through the court system. A lot of them are still in early stages, so we don't have definitive rulings from the federal courts on whether a particular token or a particular method of fundraising complies or does not comply with the securities laws. But we're really getting to a place of maturity on the legal landscape with, um, I think, some aspects of this. I, there's still a lot to be done, um, and there's still a lot of different types of actors and projects that haven't seen um, you know, a court case, probably mm -hmm. fortunately for a lot of us. But, you know, I don't think custodians still have a ton of clarity. Obviously, we don't have a ton of clarity on exchanges. We have, you know, Ether, the Ether Delta order from the SEC, but right. we don't have other, um, you know, developed bodies of case law and things like that. And, you know, I can say from personal experience that a lot of the cases are done through private arbitrations. So while the parties who may have been involved in those cases have some clarity, those haven't seen the light of day. And while they may affect either terms of service for an exchange or understandings among traders, it doesn't necessarily impact the entire market in terms of giving them a lot of clarity. Right. And so you alluded to that. And so let's talk about the quote unquote big three. You have Ripple, you have Kick, and you have Telegram. All have had various different types of kind of legal ramifications. They've had injunctions. They've had, you know, kind of stop and desist type of actions. What is happening here? Give us a breakdown of some of the cases. And again, remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. And I'm sure Re Rebecca also, you know, would say the same thing too. This is just an opining and just obviously a observation of the data and the information that is always available to anyone who's listening to this. But, you know, talk to us a little bit about some of these cases as they're unfolding, what's happening with them. Yes, I agree. Nothing here is legal advice. We're just having a discussion about the legal landscape. Um, I've learned from Rebecca very well. <laughs> um, so, right, there are, the, I would say, the three big cases right now. I'll start with Ripple because it had the most recent developments. But Ripple is a private consumer class action um, against Ripple, which alleges that Ripple issued an unregistered security in violations of both federal law and um, certain California laws. Um, 
And just yesterday, uh, the judge in the Ripple class action issued an order on um, the on Ripple's motion to dismiss. What had happened is the plaintiffs filed their complaint, then they filed an amended complaint, and then Ripple said, the complaint doesn't state a claim here. You haven't said we we um, sold unregistered securities. Um, you haven't alleged that we did it in the rent. You're too late in um, alleging that, and the whole case needs to be kicked out. The judge um, did not kick out uh, the case. She found that the plaintiffs had adequately alleged within the relevant time period that Ripple may have sold unregistered securities. Now, a motion to dismiss, just to be clear, does not is not an adjudication on the merits. She didn't say Ripple definitely sold unregistered securities. What a motion to dismiss means is if plaintiffs can actually prove the allegations in the complaint, and that will take place after depositions of Ripple executives and lots of document production and lots of back and forth from the lawyers, then they may be able to show that Ripple sold unregistered securities. Um, so the case as of now is going forward. Um, and I think that the parties there did a good job on briefing. There's something called the statute of repose, which means you can't bring a claim for selling unregistered securities three years after the public first public offering of those securities. So that's really what the defendant's motion was about in trying to kick out the case. And the judge basically said that all the early sales of XRP um, that are alleged in the DOJ consent order really go to the fact that these were private sales, that the first public offering, where it was a genuine bona fide offering to the public, so meaning uh, you know the general public, a broad swath of people, um, may have happened within the correct three-year time period. Um, but the judge actually gave the parties a chance to brief that again if they can prove that the first bona fide public offering uh, happened you know three years before the plaintiffs brought their complaint. So there's a chance that it could get kicked out again. So we'll see. Um, and then Telegram just had a big hearing last week on plaintiff's motion for preliminary injunction and cross motions for summary judgment. Um, the the prelim, Judge Castell in the Southern District of New York extended the preliminary injunction, meaning Telegram still cannot, um, cannot distribute the grams. Um, so they're they're shut down now. Although Judge Castell said he's doing what's called reserving, so he has not gotten uh, given a full opinion on either the preliminary injunction or the motions for summary judgment yet. But that will be forthcoming. The safest thing for the judge to have done was to extend the preliminary injunction and leave things in the status quo. Um, so I don't think the fact that Judge Castell necessarily extended the injunction means that. He's definitively going to the SEC or he's definitively going in Telegram's favor. Um, but I think he asked some very hard questions during the hearing last week and the transcript is publicly available. Kick is in a different place now. They're finishing up discovery. Um, they really wanted to move this case along. They made very, very clear uh, that they wanted to get to a decision on the merits really quickly and get a decision about whether they engaged in a sale of unregistered securities um, when they sold kin. Um, so the next thing that will really come to them is either a motion for summary judgment, 
which means that everyone will say that the facts developed during discovery is enough to make a decision one way or the other, or they'll just try to go straight to trial. So that that's coming and that uh, will be another interesting development. I think really getting to the merits of these cases where, where you're pretty close on Telegram and Kick will give us some real insight and really develop the landscape on um, how we look at fundraising in the crypto space right and uh i i appreciate that because obviously case law gives us kind of a path it gives us the ability to diagnose things in a correct way kind of similar to the way that a doctor would diagnose a patient they have prior precedent and they're able to obviously take a look at what the the case looks like, what the patient is presenting, and then they're able to obviously make their diagnosis. And so I get it. I understand that it's incredibly interesting to obviously have those updates on that. So another thing I wanted to discuss was the recent Wilshire rejection. And so the ETF has been on so many people's minds. Um, we've had fits and starts on this for the last two to three years. We've had the Winklevoss brothers, obviously, with their attempts. We've had the Wilshire attempt here. We've had uh, a few others out there. And so it seems, and I'm just going to read this out, that explaining the reasons behind its Wednesday ruling, the SEC said the company has been unable to provide enough proof that it can protect itself from fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices in the Bitcoin market in order to protect investors and the public interest. So... I'm asking you to maybe opine about this a little bit. What do you think is needed to get the SEC comfortable with the the idea of the ETF? And one could argue maybe that Grayscale's efforts, um, they're reporting K's and Q's, I, I believe, publicly now. You know, that could be a starting point. How do we get there? And this is irregardless of the fact that some people, including myself, don't really think that we need to get there now. But if the market wants to get there, how do you think we get there? So I – I, this goes back to sort of what we talked about right at the beginning, that this is a real chicken and egg question because you need institutional de- investors to develop a market um, and make sure that it is, you know, the, the way we think about public markets now. Um, but institutional investors, and you probably know this better than anybody, are reticent to get into the market because it's not developed yet. So I think the ETF is a great way to think about developing the market and to think about how we can get there. Sure, reporting Ks and Qs is a great starting point. Anything that demonstrates compliance with SEC rules and regulations is a a good place to start. Additional disclosure, which is really the purpose behind all the securities laws when they were enacted after the the 1920s and 30s, Mm -hmm. um, is... I think a cent- should be everyone's central focus on disclosure. But you're right that the SEC's disclosure um, rejection really goes to this question on how can we make sure we're accurately protecting investors and also um, monitoring the market. And they, you know, there's been this back and forth about whether the SEC is employing a heightened standard to these Bitcoin ETFs. Um, more so than they would to, you know, other more traditional ETFs. And they make a point, the SEC makes a point um, in footnote 23 of their rejection, where they say, this is not a heightened standard. This is just to make sure we're doing our job. And in terms of getting there, I I think everyone has to be patient. I, I know that's probably an unsatisfactory answer to a lot of people in the market, but, you know, there are, there are still these events that, let's say, the 
you know, the BZX flash loan of a week or two ago, mm-hmm. um, where there, it's clear that these markets are still new, that smart people can figure out how to arbitrage or manipulate the markets. Uh, that's, I'm not saying that necessarily is what happened at BZX, but, you know, that gave people a lot of pause. And I'm not saying that gave the SEC a lot of pause, but I suspect, although I don't know for sure, that they're not only focused on um, Bitcoin when they're saying that there's an inability to uh, prevent fraud and manip- manipulative sales and practices. They're looking at the crypto asset market as a whole, where, you know, notwithstanding the fact that Bitcoin has been around now for well over a decade and that we've really been developing these markets for a, a serious period of time, we're still new. And so the patience in making sure we bring the right players to the table and the right projects to the table to continue to, to develop the you know market and bring more institutional investors in um, is gonna be the right is gonna be the right step. It, it's really just patience. I agree. So let's talk about another issue and then we'll get into a little bit about you. And so one of the other prevailing issues out there right now is with Tether. And for those that don't know it, even though you should, because if you listen to my show, we talk about stable coins on a regular basis. Tether is one of the stable coins out there. It's been there for a while. It's supposed to be pegged to the US dollar. And so there's been some issues. And so Ifinex, Tether, Ifinex is the maker, I believe, of Tether, um, the stablecoin firm, and its Bitfinex subsidiary are charged with manipulating the Bitcoin market in 2017, something the firm strenuously denies. Can you give us a little update here from your perspective on what's happening here? Sure. So there are two big uh, cases uh, on this matter. One was brought by the New York Attorney General, um, and the other is, like the Ripple case, a private class action it's actually a number of cases were brought by a bunch of different plaintiffs and now they've all been consolidated in the Southern District of New York. And they all relate to the exact same issue, both the AG action and the private consumer class actions, both allege that um, at that Tether claim that the number of USDT tokens in circulation will always equate to the dollars in its bank account. And that, um, you know, it was trying to have Bitfinex and Tether signal to the market that there were rapidly growing demand for cryptocurrencies because each USDT printed represented another US dollar invested into the market. And both the AG and the private consumer class action say that that claim was false, that there it was never backed, that Tether was never backed one-to-one by dollars. Um, I think we can remember, I mean, it was two years ago. It was actually before both of these cases were filed. Um, Tether had put out what they called an audit on its bank account. It was just a uh-huh. few pages um, where they didn't even go necessarily into their bank accounts, but it was supposed to show that they were backed one-to-one. And so that was really, you know, Tether's claim to fame for a long time. It was meant to promote adoption. It was meant to give investors a lot of security. And ultimately, um, both the New York AG and the private consumers say that Bitfinex, Ifinex, and Tether um, commingled different types of funds that they didn't, you know, hold their corporate structure correctly. Um, and that ultimately they defrauded investors and users of Tether because, you know, their claim, their, their central claim that Tether was backed one-to-one was not true. Interesting. And something as those that are still outside of the digital asset crypto sandbox will have to understand is that this is a 24-7, 365, constantly evolving landscape. 
as Rebecca can appreciate from the legal standpoint. And so these are all things that we all have to watch on a daily basis. And so that's why we say that one year in crypto is 10 years in human life because there's a lot going on. <laughs> so let's have some fun. Let's get to know you a little bit better and have the guests and have the listeners get to know you a little bit better. The two areas that I'd like to hone in on are what have you been reading lately? And hopefully it's not all legal and crypto. And so hopefully there are some fun things that you've been able to read. And then also what music do you listen to? Okay. So, um, I actually read an old Malcolm Gladwell recently called David and Goliath. Shout out to Malcolm. Love, 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 love talking to strangers. Um, yeah. And the interesting thing about this book is it's really meant to take our traditional notions of things like education or, um, testing kids or all of these different things and turn them on its head. So, you know, there's this concept that lots of people have that having smaller classes is much better than having bigger classes. But he shows when you go to the extreme of these small classes, it's actually detrimental to learning. Um, he talks a lot about um, people with different learning disabilities, especially dyslexia, and how their brains work differently to make them like hugely successful and all of these different types of people. So like Jerry Garcia has dyslexia, Creative Oracle has dyslexia, David Boy is a lawyer, has dyslexia, and they all talk about how they got to these places of success, notwithstanding um, some of these um, obstacles in place. So it's a great book and a very interesting read. And then uh, a little bit before that, I read Bad Blood, which I think everybody's read, but is totally fascinating. Interesting. And did you mention music? No, I didn't mention music. Um, so I just recently started listening to her, H-E-R. I don't know if you know them. No. Oh, she's pretty cool. Um, and a guy named George Ezra. And I have very eclectic music taste. Um, a band called Beach Season. Hmm. Uh, uh, and then something, and sort of a European techno called Maria Davidson. So, and then, I and then I really love 80s music too. There you go. And this is why, again, why I love asking that question because I'm greedy and I get to find out all the good music out there that I don't know about. Um, so the other thing that we like to do is where can people find out more about your body of work, how they can obviously, you know, get in touch with you and the firm. Feel free if you're able to let them know where they can go. Yep. Uh, so I have a LinkedIn profile. Um, you can look me up, Rebecca Reddick, R-E-T-T-I-G, and you can look me up on our firm website, which is www.fisherbroils.com, and you go under attorneys, and you look for me, and you'll find me and my profile there. Awesome. So this was Rebecca, a fantastic overview of some of the legal landscape in terms of digital assets, something that I should have done early on, and I'm glad we're doing it now because I guess, and I'm pretty much assuming that I'm going to have Rebecca on again very soon to talk about some of the updates that are happening in some of these cases and how it's, again, affecting the overall landscape and the observation of digital assets. And so thank you, Rebecca, for joining us, and we'll have you on again. Take care. Thanks so much for having me. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. 
statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.